In recent years, the mobility field has seen an increase in companies delving into autonomous vehicles due to a confluence of heavy investments as well as significant technological advances. If properly harnessed, autonomous vehicles have the potential to massively change the way we live by providing us with a safer, more efficient and accessible transportation model. However, according to Deloitte's 2020 Global Automotive Consumer Study, public perception regarding the safety of autonomous vehicles have remained generally split, with many consumers expressing concerns. Why is this so and what needs to be true for AVs to be implemented successfully? Today, we discuss the evolution of autonomous vehicles. Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of our Future of Mobility series, bringing you the top voices from the sector. Decision makers, innovators and shapers pushing the envelope on future ideas for transportation and beyond. I'm your host Deshraf and today we're joined by Tony Han, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of WeRide, China's leading autonomous driving company, as well as Niels de Boer. Program Director at Citran Nanyang Technological University of Singapore. Tony and Niels, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Now, Tony, I wanted to start off with you. As the CEO and founder of WeRide, can you share with us more about WeRide's core business and operations? So WeRide, as the name of the company, you can see this company has some relationship with uh, mobility or transportation. So WeRide is a smart mobility company. Our vision is to really revolutionize or change the way people travel. And we want to apply the cutting edge autonomous driving technology, more specifically L4 level autonomous driving technology to human transportation. More specifically, uh, we want the first application we roll out is the robot taxi service. In the year of 2019, in November, we roll out our fully open to public robot taxi service in Guangzhou and make Guangzhou the first city in the world that have a completely open to public robot taxi service. Everybody in Guangzhou Huangpu district in an area of 144 kilometers, you can pull out your cell phone, download the app called WeRide Go app and do car hail service. And if you're just in the right position, you can hail a robot taxi car and the, the car can just take you in that area and travel around. So far we have you know, finished the testing and the operation period of 900 days and we have given right to almost 90,000 passengers and we have finished like 2.7 million autonomous driving kilometers and we haven't involved any accidents that is due to our problem. So this is what we have done and in future we really want to continue to sharpen our technology so that, you know, as you have seen from the futuristic movies, like the car can drive by itself. That's our dream. And I think we plan to land this kind of full driverless robot tech service within three to five years. That's our vision and goal. That's impressive, Tony, and uh, very exciting as well. And Niels, you lead the Center of Excellence for the Testing and Research of Autonomous Vehicles, or in short, 
Citron and NTU. So can you briefly share with us what Citron is and its role in supporting the Land Transport Authority of Singapore for the deployment of AVs in the country? Yeah, uh, so Citron has been set up and announced first in 2016 as the Center for Testing and Research in Autonomous of Vehicles. And the reason that was done is it's all nice to develop the technology, but regulators like the LTA want to make sure that any testing on the public road is done safe. And once the technology is matured, it actually can be rolled out commercially and the regulations are there to support it. When it comes to the legal side of the regulations, I'm not involved in that. That's all uh, internal. But we're working really on the technical standards to support that one. And TR68, which we developed, is one of, is the first uh, technical reference, a predecessor to a standard in Singapore. We're working on an update. But uh, we're also working very closely with the LTA on their milestone test framework, which is for the R&D phase, as well as what comes after that. So we actually do testing on behalf of the LTA of autonomous vehicles for the purpose of allowing an AV authorization, which allows you to test on public roads. And by doing that, we've looked at many different vehicles by now. We've seen robot taxis, we've seen shuttles. We've seen buses, so uh, we know that there are a number of 12-meter city buses being tested. Lately, we're looking at utility vehicles like road sweepers. And because of COVID, we've been started to look at uh, delivery robots and logistics. So we see a very wide range of vehicles. And quite interesting to look at all the aspects on that because we do see that developers and regulators are looking at the technology from different angles. And uh, we're in the middle in between, and that's an interesting position to be there. Uh, That's great to hear. And Tony, I wanted to kind of bring back the point that you mentioned earlier. Uh, WeRide identifies itself as a market leader in L4 autonomous driving technologies. So the industry normally defines vehicle autonomy as occurring across six different levels, right? From level zero, no automation to L5, fully autonomous. So can you briefly explain the levels of autonomy in AVs? So from L0 to L5, I have tips about how to memorize these different levels. So L0 is just no, no intelligence at all. Okay, it's a dumb car. So L1, we usually call it uh, foot-free. What does that mean? That means like you do the cruise control, right? You drive on the highway and you want to lock your speed like at 60 miles per hour. And that's why it's called foot-free. So you release your foot. And that one, you can just uh, do this kind of cruise control. That's L1 level. L2, we call it hands-free. That means you keep in the lanes, like in when you drive on the highway and there's some functionality in all kinds of uh, modern cars, like you can release your foot and you can also release your hands. Like the, the steering wheel can keep the lanes. That is called L2 level, called hand-free. And then L3 level, we call it eye-free. What does that mean? So like traditional ADAS car, the ADAS car, you don't need to put your hand on the steering wheel. You don't need to put the foot on the, on the pedal or the brake pedal. And also you don't need to actually always staring at the front and, but you have to pay attention to the surroundings. So if it's anything that you know, the car cannot handle itself, you have to get into the mode and to take over the car because you are still responsible for that car. You still need to own a driver's license to drive that car. That is L3 level. So L4 level means man's free. So there's a concept called ODD. If that car is inside your operational region and the car accepts your request to pick you up at point A and deliver you to point B, 
and you basically you can fall asleep in the car. You don't need to own a driver's license in order to take L4 level Tom driving car. And if there's any emergency happens, the car or the remote operational center should be fully responsible to handle the emergency. Basically, you can fall asleep. That's L4 level. L5 level is just like everything. L5 level is the highest autonomous driving level of car. That is any place, any situation that a human can drive the car, the car can drive itself. Uh, that's L5 level. So basically, you don't need to pay attention to anything. So L5 level, to my mind, still maybe have 15 to 20 years to come at the highest optimistic level. And I'm also hesitant to say it will come in the year after 20 years. I don't know. But L4 level, I'm pretty sure it will come to the reality in three or five years. That's my explanation. That's great, Tony. Thanks a lot for that. I think that's really helpful. And uh, we'll circle back to the point that you just brought up earlier. But for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the concept of AVs, Nils, I want to jump to you and ask you to walk us through the typical technologies behind most AVs from the front-end sensors to the back-end data analysis. Yeah, when you look at the technology, the level of technology depends a lot from vehicle to vehicle. You see basic components are uh, pretty similar. Every vehicle has a perception system. So perception system are the range of sensors which effectively look around, see the environment, and actually classify the environment around it. Most vehicles have LIDARs or optical cameras. Radar is often supplemented. And you perceive your environment around it. And you do your uh, sense of fusion, combine the information from various sensors and recognize what is around it. Where are your objects? Where is your road? Where are you uh, located? Once you've got your vehicle, you go into the effectively the path planning. And the path planning is effectively replacing the driver. It's determining where you go. And that has both the route planning, which is how to get from A to B. And even route planning can be dependent on on whether an AV or not. So for example, if you run an AV and you know that uh, with your certain technology, you have challenges uh, at certain difficult traffic intersections, you can actually route it so that you take uh, the lowest risk route rather than the shortest route for the with the technology in mind. Then you actually do your path planning and that is really the naving. Where do I drive the next 100 meters, 200 meters? And which lane do I pick? Where do I do? How do I affect obstacles? Then you give it over vehicle control, and that is really uh, giving your instructions to the vehicle. I want to drive at this speed over there and brake, and that is your more traditional uh, vehicle control electronics. That said, is the level of complexity depends a lot on vehicle. So if you see, we've seen simple delivery type vehicles. They have on footpaths, they have sometimes a single lidar, and they operate on that. A robot taxi is already getting pretty sophisticated, also taking into account the level of assurance they need to provide and what they need to do. So the perception system is very different. Uh, if you go for a bus, it gets actually very complex because not only do you have to deal with the fact that, uh, that you need to look at traffic, the bus itself is big, tall and square and very long. Uh, so if you have a 12 meter bus, it's three meters height, it is uh, two and a half meters wide, it's very big. And you really start with a lot of uh, sensors. I've seen one uh, vehicle which had almost 60 different sensors in and around the vehicle. So LiDAR, cameras, radar to look around, but also uh, ultrasonic sensors around it to detect any pedestrians because for one of these buses, one of the main risks is actually the fact that, that uh, because of the vehicle dynamics and how it moves, you can sideswipe 
pedestrians quite easily if they stand close to the vehicle at the side of the vehicle. So the application is going to determine a lot to what the number of sensors you have and the complexity of the uh, perception system, but the rest is all pretty standard. Thanks, Niels. And speaking of real-life applications, Stonia, I just wanted to hear from you. Would you happen to be able to give us some examples of real-life applications of autonomous vehicles? So you briefly mentioned robotaxis earlier. Is there any yeah. other examples? There's a, actually a wide spectrum of applications. Robotaxi is definitely the most profitable and the most impactful applications. But there are others. For example, as Niels has mentioned, RoboBus, like the bus can drive itself. And also maybe a robotic trailer, you know, we can fly autonomous driving to logistics. And there are actually several companies doing pretty good job in that area, like Too Simple and Plus.ai. And also some other applications like grid cleaning machines, like you can apply autonomous driving technology there. And there's also in China, very, very popular. We call the last mile delivery. You have this kind of uh, very small robotic cars, like uh, you can just, uh, the car can drive itself and deliver the goods in within, within a range of three to five miles. And I know like a very good company called Neuro.ai, they are doing this kind of thing in the US and in China, like Jingdong, Alibaba and the Meituan, they all develop this such kind of platform. So that's why I think autonomous driving is kind of revolutionary. It will totally change our way of living and it may be as important as internet. So I think definitely from policy-wise, from capital-wise, we need more resource to develop this kind of technology. Thanks, Tony. And talking about revolutionizing, you know, autonomous vehicles, I think it makes sense for us to actually go into how do AVs account for the unpredictability of road conditions and pedestrian behaviors? Because you just mentioned about the examples of real life applications. How do we go about uh, accounting for this? Can you share some examples from Rewrite? Sure. So um, I think, you know, the unpredictive uh, unpredictability is uh, the nature of human behavior. You know, you can, even as human beings, it's difficult for us to predict or project what others will do, right? Like we call the square in a the round. There's always some people like totally out of the normal distribution curve, outliers. Some of them are really genius. That's the nature of the world. But the real essential question is the safety. How can we, you know, I, I don't need to predict your behavior to really make the travel really safe. So the essential problem we are trying to solve is the safety. Um, and then we can make the autonomous driving more efficient, more economic. So to us, we want to first step is like during our trial operation, during our real operation, how can we make sure the car can don't hit anything? And actually in this aspect, autonomous driving has very, very big advantage. Because for example, with the sensor suite designed by WeRide, we have WeRide Sensor Suite 3.0. It's integrated one high definition LiDAR and six peripheral mid-range camera and three long-range camera and five electronic scanning radar. This, all of these sensors, we call the sensor tower, is actually synchronized by a specific hardware. These kind of sensors are triggered to a precision of milliseconds, and we can do a centimeter level resolution within 200 meters. 
you know, think about this. This is just like far beyond the capability of human eyes. Therefore, we can see all the obstacles and we can stop. So even there's some unpredicted behavior happens, I can stop the car, safely stop the car and let the passenger go out. Therefore, that's why we say during our 2.7 million autonomous driving miles, we don't have any accidents. Our car may not drive as skillful or as kind of so unpredictable by human drivers, but it should be safer than human drivers. That's our goal. That's the beauty of autonomous driving. We want to supply safer, more economic, more efficient transportation ways to human beings. That's our goal. Now, as we know it, the huge amount of data autonomous driving solutions produce create a natural synergy with another emerging technology that's popular these days. We're talking about 5G. So I wanted to hear from the both of you. How has 5G affected the development of AVs? Nils? Yeah, we're about to start on a test track. We're getting a 5G installation early next year. So we're looking at 5G. In Singapore, people don't really take much advantage of 5G yet. And I see also that some of the early proposed applications, they don't take real advantage of some of the 5G benefits of 5G. But I now see some developers looking at what 5G can do and how it can help. So we have a quite a nice demonstration on our test track. It's not using 5G yet, it is using DSRC uh, of infrastructure-based sensors. And that one sends uh, perception information or more or less occupancy map of an intersection uh, to an autonomous vehicle. And that helps really the performance of the vehicle quite significantly. So I think that kind of applications you might see more in the future. And that is something we haven't traded. I think we need to look more at it is the trade-off between making the vehicle smarter and making the infrastructure smarter. I know that some people believe we make the car as smart as possible and uh, don't rely on infrastructure. And I have people seen the other extreme looking at, uh, we're making the car relatively simple and the infrastructure very smart. To me, it's a hybrid and it, it's not only a matter of capabilities, but also financial trade-off and where do you put your investment and how do you get on a system level the best performance and, uh, and optimization for cost. I think we haven't really looked at that one uh, good enough yet and more work needs to be done. Okay, and we'll circle back on that point, uh, Niels. Uh, Tony, I just wanted to kind of hear from you as well. Do you think this is affecting the development and adoption of AVs in your, your opinion? So for 5G network, I have something I want to say. First of all, 5G is very expensive. Okay. 5G is really, really expensive. Why is that? Because let me tell you some st statistics. The base station range of 4G base station is roughly one kilometer. And the range of uh, 5G base station is 300 meters. What does that mean? That means the radius of 5G station is around one third of 4G base station. And we know the area of a circle is pi times r squared. What does that mean? That means any area you covered by one 4G station, you probably need nine or 10 times of 5G station to cover the same area. So if your area is very populated area, very advanced area like Singapore or like in Beijing, like Chicago, San Francisco, that's made doable. What if my area is in Midwest of US? Will we invest that amount of money to cover five to use 5G to cover the whole area? It's very challenging. However, 
you know, in the big cities, I think we really do need to cover the whole area with 5G because with 5G network, we can add another layer of redundancy with V2X technology. It can make autonomous driving safer and more efficient. But it's kind of an optimization problem. You have to balance between the benefits that 5G can bring to us and the huge cost of building 5G network. This is kind of an economic problem and you have to take really in a suitable position among this whole curve, you find the most optimal operational point to do that. So we are definitely, we benefit a lot from 5G network, but we need to find the most cost-effective way to do so. That's my opinion. Now, that's a, that's a great segue to my next question, because in our Deloitte 2020 Global Automotive Consumer Study, Price is one of the factors in influencing consumer decisions towards autonomous vehicles. So given the various technologies, as you mentioned, required for AVs, how do you see companies in the space adapting to providing affordable services to the commuters? Tony, maybe expanding on what you just mentioned, in the context mm -hmm. of WeRide, how do you see this spanning out? I think I'm very, very optimistic about this area. I think the causeway, you know, if you have been working in an autonomous driving field in the year of 2017, the price of uh, 64 lines of LiDAR is roughly uh, 750000 And uh, in the year of 2018, it's roughly 215 or something, 300000 Now it's coming to the range of 200000 or even lower price. So you can see like every year, there's sort of like something like a Moore's Law Every year, the hardware just price dropped by half. On the other hand side, human labors, you know, because of all the developed countries, like except US, but most of the East Asia countries like Japan, Korea, and China, and also uh, Hong Kong, and I'm sure even in Singapore. So all the countries, they are facing a problem that is the aging of the society. Humans are growing older and older. We don't have enough young people to do to drive a car to drive a bus therefore the human labor cost of driving a car is growing every year on the other hand side hardware is job the difference between these two curves is your profit margin therefore you just keep on pushing on the technology i foresee a business with a growing profit margin what a nice business model so we need to focus on that and continue to develop it and Niels, what about you? From an industry point of view and in your work at Citron, could collaboration or partnerships play a contributing factor in this? Yeah, you need to do partnership because this whole area is just too big and too complex to do it all by yourself. Of course, the partnership needs to make sense too. But I do see a need to do form partnerships. I see a lot of smaller companies making the mistake of trying to save costs and they try to save costs by doing things themselves. But I think in the long run, in some cases, it is counterproductive. So, for example, I see small companies trying to do their own mapping of an area. And if you do a small area for a trial, it is cheaper. But if you want to do commercial service, you need to go with a mapping specialist who has multiple customers to make the cost lower. You need to find out also what's your core selling point and what is just technology you need to make your core selling point work rather than trying to do everything yourself. So I think partnerships are very important to go forward for the whole of the industry because there is more than enough problems to solve for everybody combined. Uh, if everybody tries to do it individually, I think yeah, you bite more often than you can chew. 
and writing on that point, Nils, that you just mentioned, I wanted to go deeper and expand further as well and ask the both of you, how do you see collaborations with existing mobility players helping in realizing the new era of autonomous driving, say aside from affordability, for example? Are there any examples you can share? Perhaps we can start with you, Tony. Okay, so first of all, I want to echo, I fully agree with uh, Neil's point of view about collaboration. I think there are more problems than more available engineering resource or scientific resource to solve. Therefore, we should collaborate. But on the other hand, you know, in autonomous driving industry, there are competitors. The competition is very intensive, right? So give an example, we want to cruise Will they able to collaborate? Currently, the, the likelihood is very, very low. But at different layers, like say, will Waymo be collaborate with uh, Nissan? Uh, very likely. So uh, we have to find out in this, uh, we call it in this chain, and we need to foster this kind of a collaboration environment. No company, I mean, no company can build up autonomous driving vehicle on his own. So you know, if you want to produce from LiDAR to camera to CPU to GPU and to cars altogether by even giants like Google and Apple, they are not able to do so. We have to collaborate. And actually that is the beauty of industrialization, right? We see the job and all humankind solve part of job and then we collaborate together. So in that way, I think autonomous driving industry do need to collaborate. And to collaborate, I would say the most important factor, my personal view is the influence of the capital. The capital have to uh, get involved into to foster this kind of collaboration. Previously, we have big giant like SoftBank, Vision Fund. They actually uh, helped to integrate all kinds of uh, companies together to develop the autonomous driving technology. But these days, I think the capital need to do more thing to really make this kind of collaboration strong and make this collaboration happen. And circling back on the point that we mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, regarding the safety of AVs. Now, according to our Deloitte 2020 Global Automotive Consumer Study, there has also been an increasing consumer pessimism regarding the safety of AVs. So I just wanted to ask both of you as well, how should companies approach safety to potential customers, especially in Southeast Asia? Maybe we'll start with you, Tony. I think, you know, the trend is kind of oscillate a lot, right? There are many factors affect public views and it's a very, very complicated social psychological problems. And one accident may change the view of the whole society. So first of all, we have, you know, not only we write, but every leading companies in autonomous driving industry have to try their best to keep the safety, not only during operation, but during the technology development. But we actually publish our operation report every month and every quarter. And from our statistics, we can draw the conclusion easily, you know, with so many miles we have drive and so many rides we have given, we haven't got any accidents involved. That's excellent record. We ride as a company are quite proud of our safety. So that is one thing. And in future, the other things like we have to make sure to convince people to try to take a ride in autonomous driving with more and more people. And think about, let me explain the human commercial plane, right? You put like 200 people in a barrel of steel 
and there's some combustion engine that keep on doing this kind of controlled explosion and to change the energy from a gasoline to a push and then you, you put people in the air and then landing in the ground. It's very, very scary. But do you feel like extremely scary when you take an airplane? Probably not. First of all, we have to, uh, from basic science and engineering perspective, we prove this kind of thing is safe enough. Second is we gradually let people try it. And if you do first time, you are a little bit nervous. If we successfully give you like 1,000 trips safely and in the 1,004 times, you probably feel like it's just normal. So we have to take this approach gradually and in a very, very patient way. And we need to publish our report. And so we start from low speed and gradually to higher speed, start from very amenable region, gradually grow to the more challenging region. That's our way to gradually expand and gradually convince the public. And Niels, what about you in the work that you do at Citron? I know you mentioned yeah. earlier about public transportation. How do you go about approaching this? I think Tony uh, explained it quite well. It's very important to first start gradually and expand. So people who are always ask me, when do we see autonomous driving? And my first response is, what do you expect? I think it is important to start and grow it over time in terms of ambition, challenging areas. And that's why it's level four. You have an ODD and the ODD will expand over time. Uh, what we see also when we do demos and trials with external parties is we see actually in general quite a positive response to autonomous driving and autonomous technology, especially from people you don't expect it from. I see a lot of elderly people, they find it interesting. They, are, they seem to be less worried about the technology than certain younger people because they some of the people see the opportunity being able to get around. They're getting older, they're, they're not as mobile anymore, and they can see hey, if this technology really works, I can go out more and I can go to other places more. So if we give demo rights to elderly people, they are in general more positive than people in the 40s. So that's what I say. It is very important to let people be exposed to the technology and grow it over time. Uh, because I think a lot of the negative feedback is actually coming from people who have heard about it, but don't really know what it is to sit in an autonomous vehicle. And speaking of safety as well, with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen now it has greatly affected the mobility industry and even causing a massive slowdown in many cities. So from your personal views, how do you think COVID-19 will affect the roadmap of AV developments? Tony? I personally believe like COVID-19 will actually make people think deeply and may in, to some extent help us to accelerate autonomous driving technology. Let me tell you a real story, like during the COVID-19 first coming to our attention in Wuhan, I asked our engineers a deep question. I said, are we capable of delivering goods in the street for Wuhan? Because at that time, you know, the city of extremely short of hand to deliver goods to, to pick up passengers. At that time, sadly, we are not mature enough to deliver goods. Today, we may be able to do so. So I just asked them, so, if such kind of uh, crisis happen again, can we do something for the whole society and for the whole world? And the answer is definitely yes. So I told my engineers, okay, drive full speed, okay, develop our technology in full speed. So in future, if this kind of crisis happens, autonomous driving technology can definitely help because simply using human drivers are kind of too dangerous, sometimes inhumane to do so. So if we can use machine to do so, that's great. 
Second of all, let's put it in the content of robo-taxi. If this kind of global pandemic happens again, taxi driver is a very important source, actually coming the source for the virus to distribute itself, right? But if you use machines between trips, we pick up passenger A and finish the first trip, and then we can sterilize the environment and then pick up the passenger B, and we cut off this kind of uh, transmission, and we cut off this kind of propagation, virus propagation. That would be very, very helpful. Therefore, I think uh, we really need to think about this kind of problem deeply, and if we can, we should accelerate the development of the autonomous driving technology. We, as humankind together, just like launch a rocket to Mars, you know, what SpaceX doing is trying to help us to explore the universe. What we are trying to do is actually on this beautiful blue planet, we want to make the human transportation more efficient, safer. And if this kind of crisis happen again, we can do something to stop the propagation of the virus. That's uh, my personal thinking. And Niels, what about you? So I think... Is it going to accelerate or be slowed down? I don't think it's a black or white question, but the whole COVID situation shows really why some of this technology was being developed and pushed in Singapore in the first place. One of the reasons for driverless technology originally from the LTA was manpower concerns and manpower constraints. And the fact that we have 55% of our bus captains coming from overseas, either Malaysia or China. The other area I can see changes is logistics. Logistics also, we went a lot to online ordering and ordering online is the easy part, but it still needs to be delivered to people's homes. There was one big online supermarket. They almost had their delivery system collapse and it was for a while very difficult to get delivery slots in online supermarkets. So it's now resolved. I know from some feedback that some of these players are looking now from, hey, we had the problem. We need to find a long-term solution. Can autonomous technology and autonomous logistics support resolving this into the long run? So I see logistics definitely accelerating. Before that, Singapore was a little bit lower in terms of activity on logistics. I expect logistics to accelerate quite significantly after this because there were severe challenges in the logistics area during COVID and due to manpower constraints. So we're looking at it. I don't think it's an immediate effect, but more or less in the medium range, I see a lot of activities uh, speed up because of COVID, because the technology will help to mitigate some of the impact COVID brought to society. Now, on that note, I wanted to get your thoughts uh, from the both of you, actually. So what needs to be true to accelerate the adoption of autonomous driving technologies, especially in Southeast Asia? Niels? I think places like Singapore, China, they're actually already quite well positioned. We have quite a lot of technology players developing solutions. We have the environment which can absorb autonomous technology. You need to have reasonably structured cities, reasonably structured environment, because if you're going to deploy it in Jakarta, some areas of Jakarta can handle autonomous technology, but big parts of Jakarta are just too congested and too chaotic to deploy the uh, technology. I think one thing still needs to be done more, especially on regulations and infrastructure, because people still have problem grasping the concept of what it means to go fully driverless. So we have a lot of old thinking and old regulations, which is really framed around having humans as a driver in the future. And it takes time for all the people around it, regulators, it's legal, it's everything else to say, 
okay, what does it take? The automation is not a one-to-one -one replacement of the human driver. There are changes and the technology is having changes. So that's going to be very challenging. And Tony, what are your thoughts on this? And can we expect rewrite in Southeast Asia soon? <laughs> you know, love to go to some countries like Singapore. I spent like two summers in Singapore. Love this beautiful city. So first of all, for all Southeast Asia or maybe other countries, there's a two profound questions. We need to think about it together. Number one is, can some country, let's say, for example, Singapore or Malaysia or, you know, India, and I'm thinking about, can we develop this kind of technology on our own? And think about like the 5G technology, think about the cell phone. So probably, you know, some country develop this kind of technology and share it with all humankind, all countries. So what we need to do is actually maybe we don't need to reinvent a wheel. For example, if autonomous driving is a wheel, it's a very, very complicated wheel. Not all countries are capable of developing such this kind of thing on, on its own. So now the question becomes like, if we import this kind of uh, autonomous driving technology, what's the impact it will be make to the society? Will that uh, jeopardize my country's social security? You know, this is autonomous driving machine. Uh, it's a two tons of autonomous driving machine. And if the answer is yes, what kind of regulation, what kind of standards should we have? Currently, I think, especially at the international standard organization, we should actually think about this. You know, if we want to import, suppose like Singapore, I want to put rewrite autonomous driving robot taxi to apply it in Singapore. What kind of monitoring we should have? To what extent should we write to open the, the mechanism of autonomous driving to the government? All of these kind of questions we really need to solve before we apply it. I still believe in future, we ride may extend to Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, to us, just like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb and not only American use light bulb, all humankind use light bulb. If we develop this autonomous driving technology in my, fully from my heart, I want all humankind, every people in every country can use our technology. This is something we try hard to benefit all mankind. Well, that's exciting to hear. We're looking forward to have Rewrite in Southeast Asia. And I want to wrap up our discussion today. It's been really exciting uh, hearing from the both of you on the insights. But I want to ask something a bit more personal right now. So maybe we'll start with you first, Tony. What is the one thing that gets you up in the morning and excites you most about the future of mobility? So this kind of question, my answer is always like this. If you have in your life just one, just only one chance to define a future, won't you try all the best, use all your energy, all your resource to do so? I think the answer is absolutely yes to me. So if in your life you have chance to define a future and for the goods of all human and benefit the whole society, can't you just spend all your time and all your energy to it? I think the answer is very natural to me. So when, every morning when I wake up saying, if we can put this kind of thing into reality and you know make people travel safer, uh, that's what I need to do. Okay, thanks, Tony. And what about you, Neil? Same question. What gets you up in the morning and excites you most about the future of mobility? Maybe a history first of uh, why I ended up uh, where I am. I worked for quite a long time in automotive and tier one suppliers. And in around 2008, I left automotive. I went to another area. 
And the reason I left the other area is actually the automotive had become very stale. It was all about cost. At that point in time, we wanted to do something very new. And we wanted to do something new for not even the safety related, but for infotainment, we wanted to do, look at open source stuff. And, and more or less, I got told by my bosses, uh, you cannot do open source. We only take approved suppliers. And that's the way it is. Stop it. Kill the project. Only thing was cost. And we were only allowed to work with a limited number of suppliers. That's been completely turned upside down. All the car manufacturers, the tier ones, they're all scrambling to get to work with startups and new technology providers because they realize that if they stay where they are, they're going to go the way of the dinosaurs and they're going to leave. So to me, automotive got exciting again. And I got back into automotive when Citroën came up. I was really involved from the stage in defining what Citroën should do and starting. So that made it interesting. It got excited again, and especially it feels good at the moment to be involved, not just making an electronic box, which is 20 cents cheaper, but it's really defining the way people move around, defining the way how cities are being designed, because it actually is affecting city designs. And it's it, it's just exciting again. There's a lot happening, and you get the feeling that you're actually changing something and with visible results. Well, that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank both our guests, Tony and Niels, for joining us on this episode. From AV development roadmaps to consumer concerns, this has been an enlightening session about the future of AVs in Southeast Asia and beyond. In the meantime, if you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email at cpodcast@deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at Deloitte.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I'm Dishraf and until next time. <laughs>